Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. And welcome back to Social Distancing Radio. By this point, Dragon Con Goes Virtual is over. And I don't know if it was a lot of fun because I'm recording this beforehand, but I bet it was a lot of fun. So now a part of me kind of hopes something awful happens so that this will seem ironic and grim. Oh, I've been reading too much of this story. I'm taking on the mannerisms of Gene, except Gene is not that far from me, really, is he? It's been a while since I worked retail, but this is pretty much who I was then. Um, you know, always smile, get a good tip, let them go about their lives, try not to be too judgmental until they're an asshole, and then hate them, hate them, hate them. So, um, I am going to jump back in to part three, the finale of Complications, My Machine of Death Story. But before we do... Let's finish off this glass of reading wine that I started when I started this story two recordings ago. Oh, I thought I could do it all in one go, but I can't. Got to take another run at it. Okay. Mm. Oh, that's good stuff. All right. So, I'm going to reread the last line of part two. I'm just fine, I said, but thank you for asking. Now, finish that cigarette and help me break into Buck's office. I was a better thief than Mark. He seemed to think jiggling the knob back and forth would pop the lock, but I showed him how to use two bobby pins and that got us in. Mark asked me where I got bobby pins, and I rolled my eyes at him. They fall out of our customers' wigs all the damn time. If you ever emptied the Bissell, you'd notice these things. Buck's office looked like a wastebasket had exploded. Paper scraps and those cheap pads of thin paper you get in motel nightstands. He had stacks of them from the hourly rate no-tell out by the airport. I felt even sorrier for Gloria and Alice and all the rest of them, getting hauled out there like freight and pretending it made them feel special. Mark started going through the desk, and I stuck to the two file cabinets. I figured Buck probably liked to keep his favorites fairly organized and at the same time out of sight. It would make him feel more in charge, and he was the kind of shouting boss who clearly loved that sense of control over others. I hit pay dirt first, and didn't even bother to say anything to Mark as I yanked folders from the cabinets and flipped through them for those tattletale cards. There were a bunch of files, and I tried not to tear them up as I hurried through them. The first two had been more cases of pneumonia, but there was an explicit Kaposi sarcoma, and I knew that one because I'd called the number for gay men's health crisis when they'd opened in New York earlier that year. There were a couple of car accidents and house fires in there too, 
but enough of them were going to die of an unlikely disease that I was as sure as I could ever be. What to do, though? Call the cops and tell them Buck was murdering women by being close to them? I didn't even really know what caused AIDS. No one did. There were rumors about blood, about hemophiliacs, about mosquitoes even, but it seemed pretty clear that it wasn't that easy. Some of the boys who'd slept with Ralph were getting sick, but none of them were users or hemophiliacs or anything like that. I reached up to run my hand over my own throat. Every morning I checked my lymph nodes to see if they were swollen. Every time I got out of the shower I checked myself for little red bumps. Thanks to the machine I knew those weren't what would kill me, but I checked anyway. I checked because Ralph never had, or maybe because he did and was scared of what he found. I checked because a dead man made love to me and I had gotten lucky. I had to do something to stop Buck. He could be killing these women, and someone had to do something to keep that from happening. Poor Gloria, already starting to waste away and she'd come sniffing back around in hopes of a pick-me-up from the very man who'd done it to her. Buck's file was in there too. I couldn't resist. I didn't even feel like I had a choice to make. I opened it, flipped to the back, and looked at the card. Complications. Ha! Those damned machines. I tutted aloud, shook my head at the card itself in my hand. The nerds could say whatever they wanted about the science or the chemistry or whatever, but those machines want to drive us crazy and we all know it. When I turned around, Mark was staring wide-eyed at the open bottom drawer of Buck's desk and the pistol resting inside. I produced a long, low whistle. I bet that didn't come in the management orientation kit they mailed him when he took over from the last guy. Mark surprised me with his reticence, his open shock. I'd always figured he was more of, you know, a man's man. He liked to play it a little James Dean sometimes, but then I supposed I'd known plenty of men who liked to butch it up in front of company. Still, I hadn't expected this. Mark was frozen stiff. It suddenly occurred to me to wonder if Mark had been to Vietnam. Mark's jaw worked up and down a couple of times, but then he just closed his eyes and said nothing. Are you okay? Mark nodded, rolled the chair back from Buck's desk, and then stood up. I need a smoke. Shoot. Never knew he had a gun. That's some crazy stuff, right? Been a long time since I've seen a gun up close. Been a long time. He sniffled, and something about that stabbed me right through the heart. You're not okay. Mark chuckled at me, that throaty little ha <laughs> he did when he liked to seem cool. I'll be fine. I was about to tell him we should close back up and go over the files when Buck walked through the door. Buck wasn't supposed to be there that day. He was wearing golf pants that looked even more ridiculous than you can possibly imagine, like a tablecloth from a pizza parlor was humping each of his legs. He strode in out of nowhere, and all of the blood rushed straight to his face in veins that bulged out. His voice was a growl. What the hell are you two doing in here? Mark started to say something, but I didn't let him. I held up the file folders and waved them. You're killing the women you sleep with. You're killing Gloria Everett, and Alice Lorenz is already dead. And almost all of the women in here are going to die of the same kinds of things. You have to stop, Buck. You're murdering them. Buck looked like he might have a stroke right there, like a vessel could burst and both his eyes would fill with blood and fire. What are you doing looking at those? Those are my files. They are my private files. He wasn't angry that we were in his office, or that I had accused him of something. He was angry that we knew. 
and that told me that he already knew in his own right. He didn't keep the files back there because they were his favorites. He kept them back there so we wouldn't find out. Then Gloria showed up, and I went the extra mile to shred Alice's folder, and all that secrecy had gone to hell. All the breath went out of me as I realized it all. Buck stepped forward, swung one paw, and knocked the files from my hand in a single swipe. Get out of my office. Get out of the store. You are fired. Both of you are fired right now. If you ever talk about anything you've seen in here, then I swear to God that I will kill you. His teeth were trying to keep the anger in, but they were doing a lousy job. He sounded like an animal straining against the cage. He meant it. He meant every word. We were fired, and we would never get to come back, and if we ever tried to tell any of those women or anyone else, then Buck would... Well, he wouldn't kill us, but he would do what he could. He would probably beat us up. He would menace us wherever we got jobs next. Buck liked to push people around, and he would just keep doing that forever. I bent down, lifted the gun from the drawer, and stood back up. I held it all wrong, like a tough in a movie. Low, at my side, one-handed. Everything became very quiet in the office. Buck's chest was heaving, but he didn't take his eyes off the gun. Put that back. I don't know if this will kill you, I said. It was nearly a whisper, but that was all I could do. My eyes were welling up. I was thinking of whoever had seen that bill from a dating agency and cried a little harder, or maybe, ironically, a little less, for Alice Lorenz. I was wondering how far it would spread, how long Gloria had left, whether she already knew something was wrong. I thought of Ralph and his suave jokes and his sly moves, and the way he always had a change of clothes in his car because he knew he'd always need it. He was a man-eater, but he still seemed classy somehow. He was a cad, and I'd loved him in a world where anything more complicated than a one-night stand seemed like asking for trouble. He was a prowling tomcat who'd loved his marks, been kind to us the next morning, made us breakfast because he was just in as much, he was in just as much hot water out in the big bad world as we were, and he knew it, and he respected us for it. To us, he was a stud, a man who wanted us to feel as good as he wanted himself to feel, but to the rest of the world he was just another dead fairy, and we were in a state that gave murderers the electric chair. I don't know whether these specific bullets kill you, I mean. My voice was quaking under the weight of all the lives that wouldn't be lived. Maybe you get an infection from the wound. Maybe you die on the operating table. The cards never tell us that kind of stuff. They tell us something that limits the ways we think our hand can be played. But we still have to play out the hand. I laughed all of a sudden, a sharp bark of sorrow. I looked in the direction of Mark, blind as a bat from tears. I am so sorry to shoot someone in front of you. You are a wonderful human being. I looked back at Buck and pulled the trigger until smoke filled the air. And that's the end of Complications. Uh, So I really love that story, and it always affects me to read it whenever I read it at a con. Um, Anytime that I have a reading slot long enough to accommodate that and whatever has been published recently, then I try to do both because I really like that story and I really enjoy sharing it with people. Uh, Some things about it. So in my head, they're in Los Angeles. I never say that in the story. I also thought it was possible that they were in Phoenix, um, but they're in someplace warm because the Christmas party, they go up on the roof and it doesn't get that cold. But 
Gene obviously has kind of a Southern twang. He says things like, bless your heart. So in my head, he's some Southern queen, probably from the Appalachians, who moved out West to get to some place that was more like the big city, if not an actual big city. So he goes to Phoenix, or he goes to Tempe, or he goes to Las Vegas, or he goes to Reno, for that matter, or he goes to LA, or he goes to San Diego. He goes someplace where he expects it's going to be sunny and warm, and he doesn't have to face the kind of prejudice that he faced at home. And he gets there just in time for the HIV and AIDS epidemic to hit. I did a lot of research into the history of HIV and AIDS, and specifically the terminology around it, the understanding of it medically, the support systems that came to be built around it. And if this is set in 1982, in September of 1982, then it is exactly the right time for queer men to have started hearing it called AIDS because it had just been called that in the media and in things like national news. Uh, I remember looking up the date of the first time a national news broadcast referred to it as AIDS. And that was earlier in 1982. And Uh, The CDC obviously knew that it existed and was trying to figure out what its deal was. But if you've ever read And the Band Played On, then you know the complications around that. And you will find the current situation where we are doing things like this podcast because we have to avoid a pandemic that the government has completely fucking bungled. Uh, You'll find that a strangely familiar sensation. Um. It also, though, was a way for me to talk about like a lot of my experiences having non-queer friends who were maybe men that if they had been queer, I would have been interested in. Uh, Weirdly, in college, I had a reputation for sleeping with straight guys. But in fact, most of my relationships have not been with straight guys or guys who identified as straight or whatever that means. So uh It was a way to talk about that, where a lot of the really important friendships in my life are with straight men who were much more my brother than an object of lust. And it was also an opportunity to talk about, like, the fact that the queer community was really the canary in a coal mine for a whole lot of other people. And when we tried to sound the alarm, I say we because I am a queer man, not because I was one of the people sounding the alarm. I was eight years old in 1982. But a lot of queer men were trying to sound the alarm and they were getting ignored because of their queerness. And I feel like that's a really important part of it. And every time today I see something like Adam Carolla's tweet where he said, everybody who's dying of COVID is old or sick already. So like, I feel like we got played. And next time I'm not going to get played when they say that it's a serious pandemic and you should stay home. Then I think, oh, okay, so morons persist and they are still willing to sacrifice other people if they think it's not really going to affect them. I don't know why that's news to me. I just am, you know, I'm a big Star Trek fan. I keep thinking that we're like supposed to be walking towards Star Trek as a society. And instead, it feels like we are just hurtling towards idiocracy. Anyway, I really enjoy this story because it's an opportunity to like inhabit an identity that is was an important part of shaping who I am now, but is not something that I directly experienced. I came of age just in time for nobody that I knew at the, who came of age with me to have died from HIV or AIDS. I've known lots of people who were HIV positive. I've known a lot of people who have had full blown AIDS and really, really 
suffered and been very sick and had repeated, you know, extended hospital visits and close calls and nearly died a thousand times. And so far, none of those people that I know well are dead. Um, that said, I think that probably I do know one person who was dead of it and that was pretty bad. So that's complications. Thanks for listening. I hope that talking about the story afterwards was not somehow weirdly a downer. Um, ultimately the story makes me really happy because the queer guy gets to get justice for all the people who have been affected by the guy who is not queer and is going around killing people with his dick. And it doesn't get any more basic than that. I don't know. Freud somewhere is nodding heartily and writing in his little notebook and saying, Oh, I knew it all along. Thanks for listening. Next time we're going to start Dracula. I promise. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.